If you've been with us regularly here at Hope over the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, digging into this idea that He came for us. It really kind of centered around the, the statement of the proclamation that He came into the darkness. That is, Jesus came into the darkness to bring light. But He came specifically for those who were waiting, for those who were searching. Uh, he came as a man and He came as King. And so tonight we want to really examine that part that he came as a man. Why is that even important? Why do we celebrate Christmas and this, this coming of God, coming of Jesus as, as a human baby? Why is this so critical to who we are as followers of Jesus? Why do we make so much of this? That's what we want to talk about tonight. And then, man, we'd be so honored if you'd be with us on New Year's Day. I know it's another holiday uh, we're not celebrating tomorrow morning. There's no, no worship gathering. Uh, but on New Year's Day, we will be back on Sunday morning. And we're looking at the idea that Jesus came as king. That is, that he came to welcome us into his kingdom. He came as Lord. And he called for us to repent. And so we want to talk about what that means. But that's for uh, next Sunday. For today, this idea that he came as a man. Again, if you've been with us Uh, for any of this series, you know that we've been looking at non-Christmas stories to attempt to tell the Christmas story. That is, stories in particular that deal with uh, statements of Jesus that I came, or statements of the writers of the Gospel that He came for a particular reason. And tonight is no different than that. Tonight we're going to look at the story of Jesus calling a tax collector named Matthew, or Levi, to follow Him. And so if you have a copy of the Scriptures, I want you to feel free to turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't, no worries. Uh, I'm going to read it in a moment and just feel free to to follow along with us. It's Mark chapter 2, and it's verse 13. Mark says, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to Him, and He began to teach them. As He walked along, He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. When I was in high school, there was a song that was popular on the radio uh, and not popular with my parents. Perhaps that's why I liked it, right? Uh, It was by by a singer and songwriter named Joan Osborne. And the title of the song was One of Us. Maybe I'm dating myself, maybe not. Maybe you're familiar with this song. And in the song, Joan Osborne in the chorus sings, What if God was one of us? A slob like one of us. A stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And to so many, including my parents uh, and others, this was an offensive song. How could they sing about the Creator God in this way? And I was at a conference, uh, a concert or something like this, and this was happening. Someone, I heard someone speak about this, and it was, it was what I was feeling, and he, he summarized it so well. He said, no, 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 no. She's singing truth. 
The reality is that God did become one of us. That he, in fact, did become a slob like one of us and a stranger, perhaps not on a bus, but in a manger, on a donkey, in a foreign land. That her words are actually not just put to a catchy tune, but very prophetic in what they say. And so tonight, I want to consider, what if God was one of us? What do we really believe about the Christmas story? Is it simply an idyllic picture of this interesting scene where these two young people have a baby and there's farm animals and shepherds and wise men and all this crazy thing that gets unwrapped from its newspaper and set out for about a month or a month and a half and then packed away and put aside? Or do we believe that what happened in that story changed the course of human history? If you believe that God became one of us, then you know that what happened in that scene changed the course of human history. And I think that this story of Matthew being called by Jesus actually tells the Christmas story in a really powerful way. Uh, Many of you may know that there are four gospel accounts in the scriptures. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and then there's John. John kind of beats to his own drum. He talks about a lot of things that the other three don't. That's why the other three are called synoptic gospels. That means they share a lot of the same stories and structures. Even still, not every story shows up. This story of Matthew shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. And it shows in the same setting, in the same place, in the same way. Because it's really a profound and powerful story. So we read it a minute ago. I want to tell it again, but sort of tease out some of the hidden meaning that I think is in there. Friends, the truth, I think, of the story of the calling of Matthew is that when the baby was born on Christmas Day, the manger scene that we so celebrate, he actually came to call tax collectors. Now, this is interesting to us because we don't know much of what tax collectors were like in that day. Matthew is known to be a tax collector. We know that tax season will quickly approach after the new year. It's a stressful time of year. It's an angering time of year. It's a frustrating time of year unless you're on the receiving end. Sometimes that happens, right? And we we rejoice for that. Matthew was the man that oiled the tax machine, right? He's the guy that made it happen. Now, a few things you should know about tax collectors in the days of Jesus that are somewhat different when we think about it in our day. Tax collectors were the most hated people in Jewish society. There was no one more hated than tax collectors. They were hated more than what was called sinners or lawbreakers or people who didn't even give regard to to the Old Testament law. They were despised. Well, why? They were despised because they were seen by Jewish people as traitors. People who chose Rome, who was occupying Israel in that day, over Israel itself. These were people who were Jewish by birth, Jewish by religion, Jewish by everything, and yet they opted to work for the oppressing Roman Empire. 
And they did so not necessarily because they liked Rome more than Israel. They did so because they knew they could make a good living doing it. And so everyone who didn't do that hated them for it. Hated them for it. So much so that tax collectors were not allowed in the synagogues of the day. And upstanding Jewish people would have nothing to do with tax collectors. They wouldn't go near them. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't engage them in any way whatsoever. They considered them as bad as the unclean animals of the Jewish law. Pigs and bottom feeders. And so they were, in a sense, perpetually, ritually unclean to upstanding Jewish people. They were in every sense of the word, ostracized and outcasts from society. Now, to be fair to the the Jewish people, the tax collectors knew exactly what they were doing when they chose this occupation. It wasn't like this was surprising to them when it happened. There were two kinds of tax collectors in the days of Jesus. There was the, the sort of the main general tax collectors and they were responsible for collecting, collecting the income tax. So every Jewish person would have to pay 1% of their earnings or 1% of their grain or 1% uh, of the, the things they took in back to the Roman Empire. And the main tax collectors, this is what they did. But then there was a whole other segment of tax collectors. And basically what these people did is they paid, uh, they paid the Roman Empire enough to sort of open a franchise so that they could begin taxing people for any number of things. And part of this would go to the Roman Empire, and part of this would go into the pockets of the tax collectors. It was an interesting setup. And these people were dispersed to every known corner of society. They would set themselves up on roads and tax people who went along the road. They would set themselves up at ports and tax people who were off fishing and brought stuff in. They would tax people for any known thing. So we are not talking about April 15th when we're talking about Matthew. Matthew is not a general tax collector. Uh, The context and history is pretty clear that he's the second kind of guy. He's the guy who's really in it for the money, and he's going to tax you for anything he can. He's taking from you, and it was believed in that society they really aimed at the poor people. They really pushed the poor people out because they would tax them in the same way. And some of it would go to Rome, and much of it would stay for him. Let me try to paint this picture in a way that maybe is a little more helpful to understand. Imagine for a second that Canada invaded the United States, right? Who knows? And they conquered the United States. And then imagine that a bunch of American people signed a contract with Canadian rulers to become tax collectors in the United States. This is not an income tax. This is not a land tax. These are people who are just going to find interesting things that they can tax, ways to make lots of money, and none of the money is going to go back to help your local society. It's going to go all the way to Canada or into the pockets of the people who are collecting it. And then, to help this illustration make even more sense, this person moves into your neighborhood. And they set up a booth on your street. And every day you get up to go to work, you've got to pay a tax. And when you come home, you pay a tax. And when you come to the grocery store, you pay a tax. And when you come back from it, you pay a tax. 
Most of it going to this person's pockets. The rest of it going completely away from you. You can begin to understand the irritation and the frustration of the Jewish people. Well, in the sort of pecking order of hatred, if we can say that, you had basically the non-law abiders, then after them you had the general tax collectors, and then after them you had these miscellaneous tax collectors. They were the most hated people, right? Uh, Pardon my illustration if you are a Dallas Cowboys fan. I am not. Uh, If you've been with us before, you know this. I'm an Eagles fan. It's a sad year for us. That's okay. Um, So I really don't like the Dallas Cowboys because they're our arch rival. But then there are like certain Cowboys that are okay. You kind of know this, right? And then there's other Cowboys who really irritate me. Jimmy Johnson, when I was in high school, I couldn't stand that guy probably because he won all the time. Then Michael Irvin, he drove me crazy. But no one is worse than Jerry Jones, the owner, right? He's the height of the Cowboys' hatred. So this is what the tax collectors of Matthew's ilk were like. They were the worst of the worst. And who does Jesus go to? He goes right to the worst of the worst. And he walks right into it. And I'm so blown away by this reality as I think about this passage. Because the truth is that Jesus didn't just come for tax collectors. He came to enter deeply into their story. Think about this for a minute. If, if by some chance you wanted to find the most reviled person in today's society and you wanted to sort of come alongside of them and call them to a new way of living, how would you do this? You'd probably do it in a non-public setting. You'd probably do it, you know, anonymously in some way. Jesus, did you hear, did you hear the words when I read them? It says, he met Matthew at the tax collecting booth. Like he went right there. He didn't call to him from outside. He didn't arrange to meet him at a different time. He didn't coordinate it so that he would intersect with him in another place. He went right into the mess of Matthew's reality. Right into it. In essence, he walked in on Matthew living out his treacherous, you know, his his sinful, his evil behavior. He walked right into it. And he gives this interesting statement to him, right? It's two words. He says, follow me. Some other words might make more sense if I were to retell the story, right? What are you doing, you idiot? That'd be one way to lead in, right? You are crazy. Could you stop being like this? Why are you taxing our people? Don't you know you're hurting us? Uh, Isn't it true that you were born by Jewish parents? Why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? He doesn't say any of that. You notice there is zero ridicule from Jesus for this man? In fact, there's zero judgment from Jesus for this man. He simply says, hey, you should come with me. And Matthew does. Fascinating. And where do they go from that? I told you before that, that Matthew records this and Luke records this in their Gospels. And Mark, Mark, is, Mark is like the old dragnet, right? Just the facts. Mark is like he's just telling the facts. He's moving through the story as quickly as possible. The other guys color it up a little bit. We know that Matthew basically throws a banquet to honor Jesus, much the same way that, that, 
uh, Pastor Jim spoke about last week when, when Zacchaeus throws a banquet for Jesus. Matthew throws his banquet for Jesus, and now Jesus is not only interacting with simply Matthew, the worst of the worst, he's interacting with all of these general contracting tax collectors. He's with them all. And think about this in, in the society of Jesus for a minute. He eats with them. It says he reclined at the table with them. Now, we might think nothing of this in our society of the day. But to eat with someone in the days of Jesus was a profound statement of acceptance. Both of Matthew for Jesus and of Jesus for Matthew. It was a public statement of, this guy's okay with me. It was profound. Not only that, it is a known fact that this banquet is thrown for Jesus. So for him to attend it means that he accepts the honor that Matthew is giving him as an associate. In some way, he's forming a bond or a brotherhood with this man who society would say is the worst of the worst. It's fascinating to me. What's happening here? Of course, the Pharisees are annoyed by this. They want to know what's going on. They don't have the guts to talk to Jesus about it, so they gather some of his disciples and say, hey, why is he eating with these people? Why is he connecting with these people? What's going on? Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know what they've done? And yet, what they fail to understand is Jesus knows exactly who they are. And he knows exactly what they've done. See, Jesus' full intention for entering into the story of the tax collector so deeply says he intended to bring healing into the life of Matthew. We know this because all of the context of the stories before it are about physical healing. Right Right before it in every single one of the synoptic Gospels is Jesus healing a paralytic man. And what's fascinating about this story is that Jesus doesn't say to him, you're healed. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And this is, there's lots of angst amongst the Pharisees about this too. But Jesus is basically instituting a a one-to-one correspondence between forgiveness and restoration. Between forgiveness and healing. And so when he enters into Matthew's story here, it should not surprise us in this context that his response to the Pharisees who he oversees, overhears questioning his disciples is, hey, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I know exactly where I am. These are my people. These are the ones who I want to be with. In fact, I didn't just come for the sick. I came for the sinners. What's he saying? He intends to offer forgiveness. Astonishing. Jesus is calling Matthew to a whole new reality of life. Calling him out of his sinful life into a whole other way. Friends, as we consider this story tonight, I really think really the crux of the story is really not about what Jesus did. It's about who Matthew was and how Matthew responded. 
There's a, there's a distinct difference that's presented in every single one of the Gospels between Matthew and the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, how can he do this? Why is he hanging out with these people? Doesn't he know who they are? They're not worthy. They're not worth it. They're not good enough. Matthew says, in essence, I agree with the Pharisees. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I need restoration. Matthew, see, Matthew believes about himself what the Pharisees will never believe about him, themselves. That is that they're not good enough to earn God's favor. That there's nothing they can do to be where God is. That no sum total of all of their good things, all of their moral efforts, all of their right thinking will ever be good enough to bring the restoration they're looking for through a Messiah. Matthew, because he's already been ostracized by society, because he's kind of already thrown everything and gone his own way, and he feels the weight of this ostracization, knows there's no way of restoration for him outside of this man Jesus. See, he believes the truth about himself. And it's why when Jesus says, follow me, he leaves everything to follow him. Think about this for a moment. He leaves everything. It means he leaves his booth. That means he leaves his friends. That means he leaves his business. That means he leaves all of the money. Why? Because he is claiming a whole new life in following this Jesus than in going his own way. Pharisees, on the other hand, are so gripped tight to their effort towards morality that they'll never see it. There are three kinds of people in the world, friends. I think this is as simple as we can make it. There's three kinds of people in the world. There's people who are loyal to this world. There's people who are loyal to religion and morality. And there's people who are trying to be loyal to Jesus. And in this story we see all of the three. We see in Matthew and in the tax collectors, people who have rejected religion as foolish and stupid and have pursued life in this world and said, I'm going to make a living. I'm going to earn my own way. I'm going to build a business. I'm going to be materially wealthy. That's going to bring me the life that I've always wanted. It's going to give me security. I'm going to have power. I'm going to have influence. I'm going to be important. But as everyone who pursues that knows, it is always a never-ending cycle of not enough. The prophet Haggai says, we earn lots of money to put in pockets with holes. There's never enough. Friends, our world and this room is filled with people who are living loyal to this world who are trying their best to build a life for themselves, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make something of themselves. They are loyal to this world. In our world, and probably in this room, there's also plenty of people who are loyal to religion. They're like the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people of the day. People who are trusting not in building something apart from God, 
trusting not in trying to, to build this life of importance and value on their own over here. Instead, they're trusting in, in, in their, their rigid holding to religion and morality and doing good and, and honoring God and pleasing God and doing all the right things and checking all the right boxes and getting all the gold stars. And they're trusting so hard in it, friends. This was my story. I was so loyal to religion. If I worked hard enough, I did enough, then God, then God would love me. If I followed hard enough, if I lived hard enough, if, if, I, if I was rigid enough in my pursuit of God, then maybe his death on the cross for me would have been worth it. The truth is that just like loyalty to the world, this is a never-ending cycle. Because there's never an end to pursuing moral perfection. And most people, if you were like me, in fact, I'll promise you, if this is where your loyalty earns, you are like this. Most people are so rigid to this publicly because underneath it is a whole bunch of shortfalls that if anyone would ever see, the whole house of cards would come crumbling down. And so the Pharisees are keeping every external law that everyone can see as perfect as they can because underneath all of it, they have a heart that really isn't given towards God. That's why Jesus will say to them time and time again, yeah, you tithe the things here, but you don't offer your hearts to your God. Want to know a secret? The truth is, those two kinds of people, the people who are loyal to the world and the people who are loyal to religion, are actually really loyal to the same thing. And that's themselves. Because in each way, we're trying to earn something that we know deep inside of us we cannot achieve. In each way, we're trying to prove to ourselves that we deserve something that we don't deserve. And this is why Jesus shows up to a tax collecting booth and says to a tax collector, the worst of the worst, hey, why don't you come with me? Because when he does it, he knows he's speaking not just to an audience of Matthew, but to all of the Pharisees as well that the same call is offered to everyone. That you are welcome to walk into the freedom of not having to earn it anymore by following Jesus. By placing your loyalty with Him. Of course, Matthew does this. And the freedom that he finds is so palpable that he throws a banquet. What is the first thing that he wants to do? He wants to tell everyone he knows who is bound by the same chains that there is actually a life that we want that is totally available to us that we can never achieve in this way. And so he invites everyone he knows to find out. Of course, the Pharisees hold wooden and stiff to the other way. So friends, tonight, 
we think about a baby through the miraculous move of God who entered the world, born of a virgin. Not just for a manger scene. Not just because it makes a good story in amongst the other stories of the Bible. No, this baby didn't just come to be born in a manger. He came to call tax collectors. And he also came to call Pharisees. And the truth tonight is that he came to call you. And he came to call me. So friends, tonight the Son of God is born. He came. And he has entered into your tax collecting booth. He has walked right into it. Perhaps uninvited, but he's there. He has entered into your mess. There is no time to clean up. There is no time to make things pretty. There is no time to make things look better than they actually are. He is present and he sees you warts and all. He sees you for what you are worth. My parents used to always tell me when I was, and they they meant it for good, I I hope, I don't know. (laughs) My parents would always say to me when I was doing something bad as a kid, well, what if if God would see what you're doing? You know, and of course we all know, duh, pretty much sees it all, right? (laughs) But like this is the picture. He walks in on you doing the most heinous thing you can imagine, right? Matthew is collecting taxes to give to the occupying power of the day. He's a traitor to his people. Jesus walks in on him while he's counting the money. Right? He walks in on you in the most heinous thing you could ever imagine. You know what he says to you? He doesn't say, what are you doing? I can't believe I came back and caught you doing this. Are you kidding me? I should have known you'd be doing this. He doesn't say that. He doesn't ridicule you. He doesn't make fun of you. He doesn't kick you to the side. He doesn't say, you know what? It wasn't worth it. I can't believe this. He doesn't judge you. He simply says, hey, I see what you're trying to get. And I want to give it to you. So why don't you follow me? Friends, this is good news. We have a God who walks in on us in the midst of every bit of mess that is true and does not desire to cast judgment or ridicule on us and instead says, I see what you're trying to do. You've got no chance, right? You know? The 16th century painter Caravaggio painted one of his great masterpieces uh, on a a cathedral uh, called The Call of St. Matthew through his artist's stroke, captured in the early 1600s, late 1500s, his reckoning of what happened in this call of St. Matthew. And what's most profound about this painting is that Jesus is in the shadows of the scene. But you can see Jesus' finger pointing at Matthew. And Peter's along with him, because that would have been important in in that day. And Jesus, Peter is pointing at him too. But center stage in the picture is Matthew. And the light is shining on Matthew. And all of his associates are counting the money. They are not even bothered by Jesus being there. 
And do you know what Matthew's doing in Caravaggio's painting? He's pointing at himself. As if to say, you're calling me? You're saying this is possible for someone like me? Friends, tonight I hope you're pointing at yourself. I hope you're saying, this is possible for me? You don't know what I've done. Yeah. Jesus is not here tonight to cast ridicule or judgment on you. He's here to call you to a new way of living. I hope you're pointing your finger at yourself. You're saying, he's coming to follow me, but, I, but I've been trying to earn it on my own, doing good things, doing moral things, doing religious things all this time. He'd still come up, yeah, of course he would. He says, hey, I appreciate your effort, but that's never going to work. You're really counting on yourself instead of God. So the gospel says that even though we're as bad as we possibly could be, God loves us more than we'll ever know. And this is nowhere more profoundly stated than the human entry of Jesus to the world. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. This is what St. Paul says about the arrival of Jesus as a baby. He says, He was born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the curse of the law and offer them adoption as sons and daughters. Why did Jesus have to become human? So He could enter deeply into your story. And as you say, you know what, you're right, this is who I am. He can release you from the curse that is on humanity by taking it on Himself through His work on the cross and in so doing, offer you the life that you long for. I want to read these lyrics to you as I close. Listen to this. It's from a song by Chris Rice called Welcome to Our World. Tears are falling. Hearts are breaking. How we need to hear from God. You've been promised and we've been waiting. Welcome, holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger. How I wish we would have known. Long-awaited, holy stranger. Make yourself at home. Now listen to these last three verses. Bring your peace into our violence. Bid our hungry souls be filled. Word now breaking heaven's silence. Welcome to our world. Fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorns. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you. Breathe our air and walk our sod. Rob our sin and make us holy. Perfect Son of God. I pray with you.